0: Hey, Katie. Hey, Ben. So last week we were talking about B-trees, that is, using neural nets to optimize uh, data structures or to come up with data structures that even beat some uh, tried and true data structures like binary, uh, binary trees.
1: Yeah, that's right. So we talked about B-trees last week, and this week we are continuing the discussion with two more data structures.
0: If you haven't listened to last week's episode, I'd highly recommend you go back listen to that one first because it kind of lays the groundwork uh for what's to come. You are listening to linear digressions
1: this week we have two more cases uh hash maps and bloom filters. Which one would you like to do first Ben?
0: um I'm hungry and I want hash browns like <laughs> when you said hash browns, so let's uh Let's start with hash maps. I was not the hash joke I thought you were gonna make. But no, good. I I mean I'm good. I'm far I don't know what you're talking about, but I'm far too pure <laughs> for whatever your mind went to.
1: So a hash map. Uh, last week we talked about B trees, which is a data structure for storing sorted data. And a hash map is a a map that uses a key to find a value in an unsorted array. So before we had the idea that everything was in a certain order, according to probably like ascending value or something like this. Now stuff is all over the place, but you still want to be able to find it fairly quickly.
0: Yeah. And in JavaScript, you might come across these as objects, um, kind of a a simple example of that is you have the object dog, and then the object dog has a bunch of stuff inside of it, like dog dot stomach, dog dot head, dog dot legs, and head, stomach, and legs are the keys, and the values are whatever is stored in an associated way to those uh, to those keys. And the great thing about those is that you don't you don't necessarily have a a value ascribed to those because you don't really care about the value. um, But you can access things uh, by some sort of a unique identifier, by name like dog.stomach to get to whatever you want.
1: Yeah, so the idea of a hash map is that there's a bunch of different buckets, again, where things can go. And there's a hash function, which is, we won't get into the mathematics of hash functions, but the rough idea is that you put a key into a hash function and it gives you back one of the buckets. And the bucket is where that item will go. And so you can go back and retrieve that item later by using the hash function again. And in general, what you want to get out of a hash map, if if it's efficiently implemented, is that you don't want to, once you get to the bucket, you don't wanna to see too many things in that bucket. In other words, if you have 100 buckets and you have 100 items, your perfect case is where each bucket contains exactly one item. Your worst case is where you have 99 empty buckets, and then you have one bucket that has 100 things in it, because once you get to that bucket, you then have to iterate through them one after another, and it's not going to be a particularly optimal use of... Well, first of all, there's a bunch of empty space that you're not using, so it's very memory inefficient. Um, And then it's also time inefficient, because obviously once you get to that bucket, you have to do this much slower and more tedious process of going through them one after another. So the general idea with a hash map is that a good implementation of a hash map is one that uh, spreads out the values as evenly as possible across the buckets. Another way of saying this is that you do not have very many hash conflicts in that case where you have multiple items
0: that are being hashed to the same location in the map. All right, so now that we have a good understanding of kind of what a hash map is, what kind of improvements were they able to make on that pretty simple idea using neural nets.
1: Yeah, so in this case, this part of the paper was a little bit less well-developed than the B-trees part, but the general idea was that they built a model that has a key objective of avoiding conflicts. So you say a good model is one that's going to avoid hash conflicts. And so what that means in, in concrete terms is that the perfect model, if we're thinking about this as a machine learning model, and what does it look like when it's perfect? a perfect model is one in which there's no conflicts that it creates um, and there's no wasted space. And so this is a model that's probably going to be a little bit particular to the data that you put into it. Um, And so a model that might be perfect for one set of data might not be perfect for another set of data. But that's the general idea is that we want to have a model that you put in items and then it creates outputs that are as smooth and flat and evenly distributed as possible. That's what we want this transformation to do uh, that we're creating in the neural net. And so for this one, they used the uh, the recursive model index structure before. We talked about this a little bit last week, but a recursive model index is the idea that you have a bunch of different models and there's uh, the output of one model will point you toward another model that then you go to visit and you ask another question of that next model. So it's kind of a, each model feeds you into another model until you get to a model that's like a real expert in the area that you are querying. Uh, so they they used this recursive model index architecture uh, to try to solve this problem as well. And just like in the case of the Bloom filter, they report that for four different types of data sets that they used as test beds, that they were able to implement a hash map that was more optimal by this kind of hash conflict uh, metric, which also translates into like lookup speed and and the size of the data structure. They're able to use a a TensorFlow implementation that's more optimal than uh, one of the more traditional implementations that you might get of a hash map. So this is another, in most cases, this is another win for TensorFlow, which is kind of interesting.
0: Nice. So you mentioned the case of the Bloom Filter, but we haven't talked about it yet. So maybe now's a good time to dive into that.
1: Yeah. So this is the last one. Bloom Filter Bloom filter is kind of an interesting data structure. So this is a probabilistic data structure. Um, a and
0: probabilistic a, data structure? Yeah. <laughs> I've actually never heard... I've What? <laughs> yeah. I don't know what that... What, what does that even mean?
1: So what a Bloom Filter does is it will allow you to test whether an element is a member of a set. So you have a uh-huh. a large set and then you have an element that you're holding there in your hand and you're saying, is this
0: element that I have in the set somewhere? Um, and, and, and by set it's basically a list.
1: Sure. Yeah. Well right. a list a list allows duplicates. A set does not. Right. Okay. That, a a
0: unique a uniqueified list. <laughs> yes. Yeah d- data structure is interesting because like we have these these like intuitive human understandings of what they are with like we can get like 95 percent of the way there but then there are subtleties and so you end up with all of these different types of data structures that are subtly different and they exist because using one versus the other can yield um, optimizations in these in these unintuitive to a human situations sure
1: (laughs) so here we're dealing with sets as it happens yes um, and so the thing that a bloom filter does is it makes a guarantee that there are no false negatives, but there is some possibility a, a probability, even that you can have a false positive. So if you say to your bloom filter, I have the number 784. Is that in my set? If it says no, then you're guaranteed that it is not in that set. Mm, okay. But if it says yes, there's a probability, usually a small one, you know, you might want something like 1% or up to 10%, uh, some probability that if it says yes, it is actually not present um, in that set.
0: Mm. So I guess the question that comes to mind is why exactly would you want this?
1: So here's a simple application. So you know those things when you... I have to change your password like I don't know if Facebook for example where you work has any rules about um, password quality um, but there's certain types of like weak passwords and so if you try to use a password that's just like you write your name three times it'll say like no you're not allowed to do that and then it doesn't let you do that right, right. Um, so an example of an application of a bloom filter is you could have a dictionary that contains easily guessable passwords. So that might be like all the words in an English dictionary and it would store those in a bloom filter. And so then when a when someone picks a new password, what it's going to do is it's going to go in and say, is this word in the easily guessable list? And if it Mm -hmm. says no, then it's going to go ahead and it's going to let you use that as your password. Because um, there's no false negatives,
0: um, right? Right, you're safe.
1: Yeah, but there's you know there's some small probability that there's a word that actually would have been safe, but it you know because of the the probabilistic guarantees of a bloom filter, it'll say no anyway, and then you know you have the minor hassle of being forced to uh,
0: right. think
1: of another password.
0: And as a user, I don't really like. I don't need to know. They don't need to tell me. This is the reason that the password that you chose is insecure. They just say, "Hey, this is an insecure password. Choose another one." And then I go and I choose another one, and you know, I'm I'm minorly annoyed, but probably generally more secure.
1: Yeah. So it does it, and it does it in a really uh, space efficient way, in a time efficient way. So uh, that's nice. And so the general way that you implement a Bloom filter, this is the standard implementation, is. You use hash functions, again, like we were talking about how a hash function with reference to a hash map is a function that you put in a, uh, some kind of item, and it gives you back the location of where that's going to go in your, well, in the case of a hash map, it tells you which hash bucket you're going to put it into.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so what a bloom filter does is you have a, an array that has M bits in it, and those bits are all set to zero at the beginning. And then there's, so m might be something like 100 or 1,000. And then there's k hash functions. So k might be 2 or 3 or 4. And what happens is you put your item into those k hash functions, and those those hash functions are set up to give you back an index from 0 to m minus 1. And so m equals 100. So there's 100 different bits in your array. And let's say that k equals three, so there's three bits that are gonna get set. So you put in the number 784 again, and there's gonna be, let's say hash function number one takes in 784, and it'll give you back a number between zero and 99. So let's say it sets it to 13. So then you put the bit number 13 to a one. It had been a zero before. Your second hash function, be a different hash function. It takes in your seven eighty four again. It gives you a different index. Say it gives you fifty two. So then you go to index number fifty two. You set that zero to a one. And then your third hash function again takes in a takes in that number and gives you index back. It'll be yet another index. And so now you have three bits in your one hundred bit array that have been mm-hmm. set to ones, and all the rest are still zeros. And you continue to do that with the items that you're putting into into your bloom filter as you go. And so then if you want to test Mm. if an item is a member of your set, what you do is you go and you find out what are the indices that would be associated with this item if it were in my set. And you go to those indices and you say, are these all ones? Because in the case that the item is in the set, then those hash functions have all been set to one because that was what happened when you inserted it. But if any of them are zero, if any of them are zero, then you know that it's not in the set because there's no way that that's possible. You can't, you've set all those, you know, bits to one when you inserted it. But if they're all ones, it's possible that there was some other combination of items that you put in the bloom filter that just happens to have given you the same indices back Either independently or in some mm-hmm. combination, and so that's where you get the possibility that you can have a false positive
0: oh that's interesting so it's it's kind of a simplification in a way of of your original data set that you're checking against uh and it and you accept some lossiness in order to gain um reduced size and therefore reduced memory and increased speed in traversing and in comparing
1: yeah, so it's it's pretty space efficient, but it can still be kind of memory intensive. So some examples, some numbers that they that they spit out here just to give you a sense of scale. If you have 100 million records with a 0.1% false positive rate, then you end up with about 14 times more bits than records. That's how big it needs to be in order to accommodate that. Um, mm-hmm. So that's certainly smaller than... And, and easier for you to deal with than storing all of those 100 million records, but it can still be, like I said, a little bit memory intensive. And for some of the data sets that they were looking at, a, a typical number that you might have here is if there's a billion records that you need to put into your Bloom filter, it's getting up to, in this case, they said 1.76 gigabytes. Uh, so that's not a particularly small data structure, but mm-hmm. it's it's telling you, it's something that you can use to store a billion records, so I guess that's actually not really that big when you think about how big a billion records would be, and how hard <laughs> that would be to, how hard that might be to search. So um, that's the general idea of a bloom filter. And so the machine learning analog here is this is kind of like a classification problem. Uh, mm-hmm. So for any given item, you want to put it into some kind of classification algorithm, which will give you back a zero if it's in that item or if it's in that set, excuse me, and or I guess I got that backwards. It'll give you a one if it's in the set, probably. It'll give you a zero if it's not. So we've translated the Bloom filter, you know, is it there, is it not, into a classification algorithm. Now, the thing about classification algorithms, or the thing about Bloom filters that's a little bit special, is that we're generally comfortable with the idea that your classification algorithm can make some mistakes, um, but a Bloom filter makes the guarantee that you never have False negatives. Oh, interesting. So you need to come up with some kind of classification scheme that never gives you false negatives. And so here's the way that you can do that with a machine learning model. So you implement a just a regular classifier with your machine learning model. So this is a classifier that makes mistakes both false positives and false negatives. So you take the output of that classifier, and you tune the threshold at which you make cuts to get the desired false positive rate that you are you find acceptable for your bloom filter. So you might say, I'm going to allow a 1% false positive rate or a 10% false positive rate or 0.1%. And so depending on which one of those numbers you're accepted with, you'll come up with a different threshold for where you're going to make the cutoff between zeros and ones. So it's not going to be a 50-50. It might be at something like 90% or 95% or whatever. And then the third step is that you create and use a smaller bloom filter that we call the overview bloom filter, Or <laughs> excuse me, the overflow bloom filter. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the idea is that you take a first pass at a prediction with your model. And the way you've set your model is that you've set a threshold. If the f- the prediction that is returned by your classifier is greater than or equal to your prediction threshold, then you assume that the key exists and you know probabilistically you'll be wrong some of the time. Um, but you say, yes, this does exist. And so this is not, there's no possibility of false negatives here because you're not making a negative prediction. Mm-hmm. and uh, in the other extreme where you might be making a negative prediction, uh, then you go to your overflow bloom filter and you actually check, like, for realsies, is this in there or not? Um, and so that's what prevents you from getting the false negative is that if you were going to make a negative prediction, you go and check it against a a true bloom filter implementation, which is much, much smaller, but that guarantees that you're never going to have that false negatives. And so you get to have it you kind of ha- get to have it both ways. Um, and so to finish to finish this out here, the main figure of merit for Bloom filters is the memory footprint that they leave. Um, and the learned implementation in TensorFlow does have a, a better memory footprint than the Bloom filters that they implemented by hand. So I think this means that overall, the learned index structures generally seem to be better. There's a lot of uh, it's a really interesting result as we talked about before the whole idea that we could use machine learning models as data structures is mm-hmm. like pretty yeah. new and cool and and honestly data dependent. The authors of this paper did a pretty honest job at trying to look at a few different types of data structures, but it depends on your data itself whether one of these algorithms will do better. So I'm also going to uh, stick on lineardigressions.com. In addition to the paper here, um, a really interesting blog post I found that's trying to look at a few more cases here, and and in particular, the authors of the paper uh, hopped in on the comments thread of this blog post, and they had a really interesting discussion about some of the some of the nuances here. So I wouldn't say by any means that you should throw out your old data structures and replace them all with TensorFlow code, <laughs> but uh, there's a pretty interesting case here for just a totally different way of thinking about data structures as as machine learning models instead. So it's just a completely different way of thinking about computer science. And that's really cool.
0: Huh. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said in the other episode, um, it's really neat when these very well-established data models actually get some, some real competition, you know, like something that might actually be able to outperform them in a significant number of cases. And it's worthwhile, especially if You have a lot of data access, like someone on the scale of Facebook or Google or or whoever, that they might actually want to consider implementing this to eke out just a tad bit more performance. Linear digressions is a creative commons endeavor, which means you can share or use it any way you like. Just tell them we said hi. To find out more about this or any other episode of Linear Digressions, go to lineardigressions.com. And if you like this podcast, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes so other people get to listen to this content too. You can always get in touch with either of us. Our emails are ben at lineardigressions.com and katie at lineardigressions.com in case you have comments or suggestions for future shows. You can tweet us at Lynn digressions Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.